two TPRs worth repeating series. We have our pearls on. Thank you all for coming and wearing your pearls. I want to hit you with a quote because you know you sound deep and profound if you start off your whole thing with the whole quote. So here we go. Stefan A. Holler, he had this quote, a pearl is a beautiful thing that is produced by an injured life. Think about that injured life. It is the tear that results from the injury of the oyster. The treasure of our being in this world is also produced by an injured life. If we had not been wounded, if we had not been injured, then we would not produce the pearl. Pearls are the only gem that are created by a living creature. Think about that. Our first storyteller is Isabel Brown. Isabel is here to share a pearl of wisdom from her grandmother told in first person. Let's all welcome Isabel Brown. Put your hands together. Today I will be using my voice to tell you my story from my grandmother from the 1950s in the first person. Growing up, me and my abuelita were very close. We often made a lot of Mexican food together, and that was our way of bonding with our family and the neighbors, pan dulce, tamales, barbacoa, things like that. And, you know, growing up, Spanish was my first language, so often I would come home and I would be crying for miscommunication because nobody understood me. And all my abuelita had to say to me to make me feel better was, you can choose what we make for your family when they come home tonight. And I would feel better right away. But this cycle kind of ended towards high school when I started to learn more English and I began to make more friends, and this girl named Ashley became my best friend. She was as pale as the moon, she had beautiful blonde hair, and I thought of our differences as very admirable, and she, I loved Ashley. My abuelita didn't, though. Um, she slapped me, and she told me, those people can never be our friends. They oppressed us for so long just to have their kids turn a blind eye to the oppression. And in response, I said, you know, not all white people are like that, Abuelita. They're not so spiteful all the time. Ashley is a great friend. She would never do that to me. She looked me dead in the eyes, pointed into my chest as she told me, you make one mistake in front of those gringos, and they will remember what the color of your skin is. It'll be as though they've seen the sun for the first time. And all I could do was glare back. I'm tearing up and I'm dressed in these clothes that Ashley had bought me from expensive stores across town. So there wasn't much I could say. Um, and that was the last interaction I had with her because later that year she died of a stroke. And I was the most devastated out of everyone in my family. So a couple years pass and I get a job somewhere local and Ashley gets goes to college, becomes very educated. And, you know... Me and Ashley didn't hang out a lot in the summer because I was the darkest in my family. She would forget to invite me to picnics and barbecues and pool parties, but we did see each other a lot in the winter when I was pretty pale. But this time, she didn't forget. She invited me to this big blowout to celebrate her husband. Let's call him Gary. Um, he was running for governor, and the people in my neighborhood didn't seem to like him very much. They would paint these X's all over his eyes for the campaign posters, and I didn't tell Ashley this, and I didn't tell anybody in my neighborhood that she was married to him. So the night of, 
um, I'm getting ready. And before anything else, I put this powder on my face to make myself look a bit more white. I put it all over my jawline and down to my calves, and I'm as hueless as the moon. I'm so white and beautiful. And Ashley had bought me this dress to wear to her party. It was this rock and roll kind of red polka dot. You could just kind of twist and turn in it, you know? And I have these pearls. They're not real pearls. I can't afford real pearls. So it was this beaded necklace, and I had painted white all over them. And I put them on. And I'm getting ready, and I leave. As I'm leaving for this party, I'm thinking about my abuelita again. She just kind of pops into my head. And just the things we would do together and baking. And our last Dia de los Muertos that we had at that time, where I had given her pan dulce and hot chocolate. And I remember her. And she was this moon in my life. And even if the correct way would be to say she was the sun in my life, we were both night owls. And I just remember her so much. And I missed her in that moment. And then I get to the party. And Ashley is the first to greet me. She says things like, Esmeralda, your skin complexion is so great. The dress I got you looks incredible. I'm so jealous of you look so great. I'm just so great to see you after all these years. And in the summer, for God's sake. My name is Esperanza. Uh, it's been a running joke for me and Ashley for a while where my, my name is a tongue twister and she just calls me what is easier on her mouth. So I meet Ashley there and I meet her husband, Gary. He has a very tight grip, you know. It's very obvious he's a politician. You know that charisma that they just have, you know, they're just there, it's the life of the party. I know how to grab your attention. That's who Gary was. And he gives this big speech with a wine in his hand and he says things about how no matter who is behind you with their politics, you need to be on top. And how he misses his grandfather who fought in the Civil War and lost. Um, and everyone cheers to the grandfather, and we all drink to that, even though I don't drink much. But a couple hours into the party, I'm having a really nice time, and it might have been the liquor talking, but I felt like I had found some sort of second home. It was warm, I was sitting down, everyone's having a great laugh, and I feel as though my abuelita was wrong. But then I hear it. I hear what will continue to play through my mind for years. It's the story of how Gary shot a dirty gardener in his backyard. And everyone around him is laughing. The thing is, though, I keep laughing. And I'm laughing. I'm laughing until I'm crying. And every time I closed my eyes, I could feel my grandmother's presence behind me. And every time I pressed the chest, my pressed my hand to my chest in amusement I could feel my grandmother's finger piercing at me saying you make one mistake in front of those gringos and they will remember the color of your skin and I couldn't make a mistake and I, I turned to leave but Gary grabs me by the by the wrist and he tells me you're leaving so soon I'm about to get to the part where I kill it and it's just me and him in the room at this point. And I can feel him looking at me with those damned blue eyes. And I tell him, I need to go. My mother will be worried. And we're still looking at each other. And he's piercing into my skin. And then he lets go. And he tells me, fine. Tell the governor. Tell your mother, the governor-to-be, has taken a liking to you. And when he lets go, a splotch of brown is exposed to everybody in the room. I made a mistake. <laughs>
and I leave the house and I run out and I limped all the way home and I could begin to feel what had killed my grandmother. It was this rush of cynicism and wrath and the dread of failure. It was the stroke of heartbreak and then it began to rain and I could feel the powder coming off of my skin and I'm running home and I don't even hear what my mother tells me as I rip off the fake pearls and I get on my knees and I find my mother, my grandmother's ofrenda. I grab her frame and I tell her I am dark from the summer heat. My name is Esperanza and you were right. You were right about the gringos. Thank you. Our next storyteller is Kim Wells. Kim is here to share her story about how sometimes when you're busy making plans, life has something else in mind. Please put your hands together and let's welcome Kim Wells. In the fall of 2020, my big sister was diagnosed with lung cancer. Sorry, it's a little hard sometimes. About less than a month later, her roommate called me to tell me that she had refused her meds and she wasn't taking any water and she was kind of acting a little mean. So when the paramedics came, they asked her how long she'd been sick, and she said, a long, long time. The thing is, she really hadn't told me that. She'd been coughing up blood, she'd been scared, but it had only been about a month since the diagnosis, so, you know, we, we thought we'd had some time. Uh, her roommate, worrying, also worried me, so we made plans to head over to Florida where she was. I had already been planning on going to Florida. I was going to rent a house on the beach. We we're going to do that whole little women when Beth was sick thing. And I was going to feed her chicken soup. Um, I even had a dream that my mother and grandmother, who have also passed on, were in my kitchen telling me to cook some chicken soup. And my sister was skinny, so she needed some chicken soup. Um, but we went over, and the next morning, I headed up to the hospital. This is where it gets a little weird. In a terrible twist of fate, the night we were driving there, my niece, her daughter, had collapsed. They brought her back to life, and they had life-flighted her to the exact same hospital, two floors down, in a different ICU. So I knew I would be seeing her the same day, and my sister both that day. I made my way up to the room, and the first thing that the ICU nurse told me when I got there was, she's in hypoxia, she probably can't feel any pain, she can't hear you. So I looked over at my big, strong sister, and oh man, she looks so small. That wasn't her. <laughs> uh, her glasses were on the side table where she'd left them before she lost consciousness, and a mask was pumping air in and out of her. And I thought, she would hate how bad her nails look right now. <laughs> Man, that would make her mad. So I really wanted to fix that for her. 
Um, but I also thought that is a silly thing to think while she's struggling to breathe, while a mask is breathing for her. But, you know, those kinds of things kind of go through your head. Um, the nurse had told me to hold her hand, to talk to her, and I tried that. But her hand was cold, and we weren't really a touchy-feely family, so that felt wrong. So instead, I just held the rail of her bed, and I hoped somehow she knew I was there. Something I thought would be nice is to play some of her favorite music. So I really quick pulled up a playlist and played the music, but then my battery and my phone started to go down, as they do, right? So I went to the car to get my charger, and the whole time I was worried that by the time I got back, she'd be gone. You could just feel that time slipping away. I made it back, and I thought another thing to do would be to call some of her friends and her ex, who I actually had to unblock because we weren't talking since the 2016 election. So <laughs> I called them, and I held the phone up to her ear, and I let them say what they needed to say, and I, they hung up when they were done. It wasn't the cancer that was had her here. Uh, three days before she stopped taking her meds, she'd had a biopsy to determine what stage of cancer she had, and her body just couldn't take it. She went into shock, and then that became septic organ failure. So that's an irony that trying to figure out what might kill her might actually kill her. And that was also kind of weird. When she lost consciousness, she didn't even know what stage she had yet. At some point, her cancer doctor, who, don't tell anybody, but he looked just like Dr. Oz, <laughs> came in and told me what stage she had. The pulmonologist came in at some point in the eight hours I was there and told me, hmm, the mask is delaying the inevitable. It's making her suffer. And she said, would you want this for you? So I called her son, and we decided to take the mask off. And uh, that was hard. That was hard. In the movies and TV, when you do something like that, it happens fast. Everything just goes crazy. That's not how this worked. It was a lot of hard work for her to die. Her breaths came slower. I watched the monitor for signs of something, anything. I have no idea what was happening, but somehow I thought I would know, right? And the gaps between breaths got longer, and eventually they just stopped. So I, I didn't want to see the business parts of them unhooking her and putting her stuff in a baggie and rolling her out, so I just left. I went downstairs to my niece's room, and she looked just about as bad as her, her mom, but also kind of worse. The thing that was interesting was the nurses were all kind of excited because around the same time Judy had been taking her last breaths, Sarah, who was unconscious, had struggled, had kicked, and they said it was like she was fighting something. They said it was like she was just kicking and trying to wake up, and they said they got chills. They touched themselves on their arms, and I said, yeah, they were definitely fighting over something. She was saying, Judy was saying, you are not supposed to be here. You need to get better. <clears throat> Unfortunately, she didn't. It was about six months later, and because of the complicated series of addictions and other things, we also lost Sarah, and that was also really hard. So I sat there for a little while, and 
after this incredibly long day, I finally made my way down to my car, and I sat there in silence. I really needed the silence for a while, and I thought about the fact that she found out, you know, she she didn't know yet what stage she had, but while I was there, I found out what stage she had, and it turns out it was stage four, so she probably did not have that long anyway, and I kind of started to think maybe... Maybe she kind of wanted that. She looked at this future she had ahead of her and she said, no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> no. And that's kind of the way she was. Uh, there were times when she was my best friend. She was mean sometimes. And she was funny and she was sweet and she was strong. And she saved me so many times in my life. And she was just suddenly gone, you know. And in a year where so many people lost people, it felt also weird to lose someone to something other than the big thing. <laughs> but as I sat there and I put my head down on the steering wheel and wondered if I was going to cry, I thought we were going to go to the beach. We were going to do, th- I was going to feed her that chicken soup. So here's my lesson. If I have a pearl of wisdom for you, it's this. You're going to think that you have all the time in the world until you don't. So don't waste it. Our next storyteller is Joaquin Abrego. Joaquin is here to tell his story about the magic and healing found in food. Let's all welcome Joaquin Abrego. What's up, y'all? My name is Joaquin. Uh, Everybody knows me as Joaquin Muerte, but my government name is Joaquin Abrego. come from a small town, Del Rio, a uh, Texas town, very typical, it's on the border, but I'm from the barrio of San Felipe. Uh, I come from uh, two cholo parents. Uh, my mom, uh, old school chola, they call her the teenager, and my dad, El Pachuco, low rider, Raul. Uh, they were both uh, very hardcore involved in gangs. Um, and then uh, when their gang member friends started to die from gang violence, they started to organize their community around the gang violence and um, then became uh, Brown Berets and then, um, uh, and then started organizing as social justice activists in the community around immigrant rights and uh, community organizing just of all kinds, turning gang members into uh, teammates and uh, building lowriders out of, out of cars and just random bike parts and lowrider bikes and then uh, as a part of that, began um, doing work for Lowrider Magazine, and uh, and then just started going from there. And um, I came out sometime around uh, after a crazy LSD party. Uh, <laughs> was born in '82, um, and jumped right into social justice activism as I was growing up. And literally, I was a little boy folding chairs, wiping down tables, um, and you know, when, you know, helping people out in the community um, as I could. I joined every little project that my mom was a part of, and um, but in that same process, both my parents were super busy, right? They were always out in the community, always doing little things, and so um, one of the things that we fought about all the time was food. Um, we ate really bad and drank a lot. As a young kid, I wasn't drinking. 
Uh, and when I say young, like under 15. <laughs> uh, as we lived on the border and access to Mexico was really easy. Uh, so um, it was always like a warm up some nuggets, um, get a little microwavable pizza, you know, make a sandwich. Uh, sandwich. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You put the chips on the inside. Uh, and the beautiful thing was that in my barrio where I grew up, it's very much like the west side of San Antonio, but the barrio where I grew up has a beautiful river on the on the inside. It just flows right through. So we were always in the water. Swimming was a big thing as my parents were organizing in the park, doing stuff with gang members, dr driving lowriders. And so, uh, yeah, so um, when I wanted to go to college, I moved to San Antonio um, but back around 2000 and was still battling food. I was always eating the same nuggets and eating the same sandwich. And for me, that was uh, how I did food all the time, um, eating microwavable pizzas. Um, for a little while, I started getting involved with a Chicano movement here in town and wanted to start organizing. And I just put my skill set to it, right? Organizing as a Chicano, organizing with community organizations. And I got uh, connected with places like the Esperanza Peace and Justice Center, uh, Graciela was like, hi, mijo, you know, how are your parents? Come in. Uh, we need you. Let's jump in right into it. I was organizing with places like Fuerza Unida, and they would always say, ¿Cómo estás, hijo? ¿Cómo está tu mamá y tu papá? Right? They knew me from the kid, and I was this adult now helping out, learning how to organize with them, and the San Antonio landscape of organizing, all the while eating really bad food. <laughs> um and so then uh, I got involved with some, like, crust punks because, you know, Chicanos are also crust punks, right? <laughs> and I started to hang out with them. And there was a lot of veganism and vegetarianism. You know, we're leaving meat and we're eating, you know, um, vegetarian food. So for me, how do you find vegetarian nuggets, right? At the, <laughs> at the time, there wasn't the Morningstar stuff that we, were, that we see now. Um, and so I was eating a lot of bread and a lot of pasta. <laughs> Uh, and immediately started just putting on the weight. Um, so that, so this has always been a big battle. So as I just kind of began organizing uh, and being learning how to do really hardcore uh, organizing, um, I was getting involved with the organizations here in town where that were doing a lot of um, um, like protests work. And um, I, I, became, I became the guy that was organizing massive protests in San Antonio as I was putting that skill set to work. And I was working for an organization called Southwest Workers Union. And one year we were like protesting the, the treatment of immigrants in, the, so in San Antonio. And uh, we organized this arm lock, you know, a human chain outside of City Hall. And, and uh, I see my homeboy Juan and, and uh, he was cruising on a bike because I do went everywhere on a bike. Hey, Joaquin, what are you doing? I was like, uh, you know, holding it down, man. You know, we had all the intersections right in front of City Hall all um, uh, blocked up. And uh, there was cops all over the place. And we were chanting the whole time. And he said, hey, man, you know, the city's hiring. They're doing, they're looking for people that organize like you. I was thinking like, work for the man, bro. Literally that year, that organization started to push out some of our old school organizers, and I started to get in. I needed to find a job, right? So, um, using my skill set, I got involved with the city. They were looking for a community health worker, somebody who organized around health, <laughs> somebody who organized around health, social justice, but uh, but with the health first, right? Like, how do we do around health? And so, you know, I, I was like, uh, sure, you know, I sure I could do it. I, I figured out because I wanted to community organize it and I wanted to continue that work and continue working for the people on the ground. And so I, so I just figured out, well, if I like to eat chicken nuggets, how can I do it healthy, right? 
I started jumping right into it. Food demos is what they wanted me to do. How to how to show people how to drink more water in San Antonio. You're, okay, well, I'll figure it out. So we started putting making aguas frescas, and the aguas frescas were just the water that you get from mixing, you know, cucumber and watermelon, except not adding the sugar, right? And you just drink it; it tastes it's what we know, what what some white people know as infused waters. <laughs> Uh, for us, it was agua fresca, fresh water. You know, it's a translation, literally. And so uh, we were, uh, I started to do it. Everybody was like, I love this. And I started to do it heavy on the West Side. I started going into every organization, everybody I knew, everybody that I was working with on, in, uh, on the ground and doing this type of work with. I was going into the spaces and making enchiladas verdes, you know, uh, making caldo de pollo, but without the pollo, right? I was doing um, uh, how to do healthy carne guisada, substituting um, flour with cornstarch. And so um, it was a crazy thing. It was happening. And then COVID hit and we were all put to do um, COVID response. And um, then the snowmageddon. Yeah, remember that? So in Del Rio, the snowmageddon was a freak snow. It was 12 inches of snow. And my parents were locked at home inside their house. Um, they had no food. They had no water. Um, and, you know, they were already not eating well. But the only thing they had was tequila. I'm serious. I'm serious. And so then I called them on Thursday, right? This is like day four of heavy snow. And I said, What's, are you guys all right? And they said, no, uh, we're hungry, but we have tequila. <laughs> and so they were like, they were, they were like doing that, right? So then um, my father started having a uh, uh, weird, he started acting weird. And so then, you know, they said, let's take him to the hospital. Um, turns out he had a series of strokes. And so he moved in with me. I had to start figuring out something. And the doctor said, you want to save him? You have to make, help him eat healthy. So every day I was cooking for him and making the same things that I was doing in the neighborhood. Everything that I did in the community, I said, I'm going to do it at home. And he was just like, ¿Qué es esto? Comida de conejo? And I was like, yeah, man, it's healthy. You have to try it. Well, I want something for breakfast. Give me some bacon and eggs. So I made him turkey bacon with kale and eggs. I mixed it all together with a little bit of mushroom, and he loved it, right? But he would always like tell me, like, what is this? And then he would taste it. And I said, you like it? And he was like, it's pretty good. <laughs> so... um Fast forward, right? Uh, I was taking pictures of every one of these meals and posting it, and we were talking a lot about sobriety. My father had to be sober. He couldn't drink like the way he used to drink. Couldn't smoke cigarettes like the way he smoked. And I myself was giving up alcohol, right? I started to start exercising and 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 eating the recipes that I was because I was making enough for all of us. Uh, my mom was there, my dad was there, uh, and we were making enough food for everybody. And so then um, I would post all of this and have these discussions about how to tame the Southern Texas border brown man. Right? <laughs> Uh, I got a call from a friend of mine, Kelly. Uh, she got a call from the Food Network. They were looking for local chefs. And she said, I don't want to get uh, a, a, a local chef. I know a friend of mine who makes good food. He's not a local chef. He knows how to make really good food. I'm going to get him. She calls me up. She says, hey, the Food Network's looking for somebody. And I was like, what? <laughs> sure, man. Let's do it. You know. Later on, like, like a month later, the Food Network calls me and says, hey, we're ready for you. And I was like, whoa, you're serious? And they said, yes, can you put that recipe on paper? And then we're going to call you when to come in and film it. And so then, um, you know, I, I, was, I was blown by it, right? And so I, they called me up. I put the recipe all down. They, I couldn't, they, were, they had to change some of the stuff where I said, salt, pepper, garlic powder, uh, onion powder, santealo. They wanted to know, no, how much do you put in a spoon 
it wasn't tantearlo. You know, I was, I was, for me, it was like I stopped putting it until my ancestors said, hey, mijo, ya es enough. <laughs> so anyway, um, so then I was on the Food Network, y'all. <laughs> Look me up. Guapozole verde with the hongo, and you can have thousands of people to follow me. And uh, and the, my father's health is a lot better now. His A1Cs and his diabetes are all manageable, and all his uh, um, heart um, is all good now, and he's doing a lot better. So, that's my story. Our last storyteller before our intermission is Edward Hernandez. Edward is here to share his story about the power of peer pressure. What up, what up? Give it up for Joaquin, who fucking just showed all of y'all how to make a prison spread. Mm. Now I'm going to show you how to go to prison and enjoy it. Uh, my name's Edward Hernandez. Um, in 1991, uh, I had just gotten out of the Navy, and uh, I had a wife and two kids, and uh, I didn't have a direction where I was going once I got out of the Navy, and my old friends from high school started coming back around the neighborhood again, showing up in the new BMW, new motorcycles, new Mustang. I was like, what are you doing, man? My money's starting to run out. And I said, dude, we're only going to tell you if you're in on this. And I was like, well, I don't want to know then. I don't want to know. And then about another month or so, one guy went by, bills started building up. <clears throat> one of my real good friends, Mark, comes over. He's got his new Mustang. I'm like, what are you doing, bro? He said, well, look, dude, I'm going to fill you in. I know you need some money. He says, me and Freddie are robbing jewelry stores. I said, shit. Sounds like a badass idea, bro. What's up? You know, I went in. <laughs> And I, no, so I was like, nah, dude, that's fucking crazy, dude. That's out of my league, you know. We were we were crazy. Grew up in the Jefferson neighborhood, neighborhood right here, you know, and we did a lot of crazy shit growing up. But uh, that was out of my league, you know. I said I don't want no part of that. But then they were showing up. The next month goes by. Bill started getting deep. I said, what's up, man? I'm in. He said, well, <clears throat> we need you to go. Um, we need to find a driver because if you're gonna go in with us, the only way we're gonna split the jewelry with the, with you is if you go in. He said, this is what we're gonna do. Freddie goes in, he has a Mac 11. He cocks it once. Well, first he goes in and tells everyone he's getting married. He wants to see the wedding rings. They start showing him the wedding rings. And then the plan was that uh, we would steal a car. And we'd have it parked outside. Freddie would stay in the driver's seat. Me and Mark were going to go in. Uh, Mark had a bag already. I had a 357 on me. Um, I was going to stand at the door and be the lookout. I said, well, fuck, let's go. So we drove to Midland, Texas. <clears throat> Y'all know about Midland, Texas? Yeah, that place sucks. So, <clears throat> I didn't even know about it. I just knew that the San Antonio baseball team played their baseball team. That's all I knew. So, we drove all the way to Midland. That's like, we drove like five, six hours to get in trouble, man. So, we get to Midland. All right, we had a long time to think about this shit, you know. So, we drove all the way to Midland. And, uh, um, you know, on the way, we go down there in Freddy's BMW. And well, we get there and Freddy says, uh, well, we got to steal a car because I'm not doing it in my Beamer. So, uh, yeah. Absolutely not. Should have got her. Um, <clears throat> might not have got caught. I might not be telling this story to y'all, motherfucker. So, so uh, we go down there and we said we're going to steal a car. So we go to the movie theater. 
we look for a car to steal. So we steal this plain Jane, like a white, like a cop car looking car. So we steal that. We were, our plan was to rob the jewelry store at 10 o'clock in the morning. Bright and early, for, as soon as it opened up, go in there, get them. Don't hurt anyone. Don't break anything. No alarms go off. Get in and out of there before anyone knows what happened. Um, the problem was I got scared. We got there at 10 o'clock in the morning after we stole the car. And I didn't want to go in because we were in Midland, Texas. And I keep hearing that Midland, Texas is full of good old boys that all carry guns and they're going to shoot you. And so I was like, I don't want to go in there because if anyone's going to be in there at 10 o'clock in the morning, it's going to be the owner. And if the owner's there, he's the one that's going to shoot for his jewelry. So I said, I didn't want to go in. So we went across the street and we called from the payphone at about noon and we asked for the owner. And they said, yeah, he's here. Hold on. And we would hang up and then we'd go look for something to do and wait like 30, 40 minutes. And we call again. It was a Friday afternoon. Called again. Can we speak to the owner? Hold on. Boom. We'd hang up. We did this till about three o'clock in the afternoon. <clears throat> yeah. Finally, we called three o'clock in the afternoon. Can I speak to Mr. Majors? They said he left for the weekend. Boom. Let's go. So we drove across the street. Well, in this jewelry store was in a shopping strip. And our plan was to park the stolen car, to go in the stolen car. And we were going to park Freddie's BMW and some condos that were right next to it. So when we got in the stolen car and we went to park the Beamer in the condos, we're all jumping in the stolen car when some lady comes out of nowhere and says, what are you doing parking in my space? And we didn't know it was condos. We thought it was just apartments, but it was condos and they have assigned parking. So she's like, what are you doing parking in my space? And I said, well, shoot, I, I don't know. My friend John told me just to leave his car here. Well, I don't know anyone named John. I was like, you liar. Everyone knows someone named John. And I was like, well. So she was like, well, I don't know anyone. I was like, well, okay. And I was like, well, what do we do? I said, you know what, dude? I'm just going to move the car. So I jumped in the stolen car, in the Beamer. I jumped in the Beamer and Freddie jumped in the stolen car and we moved it. Well, we didn't realize at that point that lady had gone inside and wrote down the license plate numbers to both vehicles. We hadn't done anything yet but steal a car. <laughs> right? So we didn't think about any of that. So she memorized it. This bitch had a good memory. And she went... She went inside and wrote down the license plate numbers to the cars. So we didn't know this. We didn't know this. So we said, let's change the plan. So we're going to do the whole route. Well, let's go across the street. There was a Vaughn's grocery store. Let's park the stolen car. I mean, Freddy's BMW in the Vaughn's grocery store. And we'll, we'll go across the street. We just have to change the route a little bit. Let's do it. Boom. We go over there in the stolen car. Freddy goes in and he says, give me a couple minutes. I'm going to go in there and say, I want to look at the wedding rings. So Freddy goes in there. Me and Mark are standing outside the car. I'm scared as a motherfucker. I ain't going to lie. I'm scared. It's three o'clock on a Friday afternoon. We're about to. We we put super glue on our hands so that we wouldn't walk in wearing gloves, so we wouldn't leave fingerprints on anything, and no one would notice us wearing gloves when we walked into the store. So we had super. That was a horrible feeling. We couldn't get that shit off for months. So I got super. We all have super glue all over our hands and sunglasses, and I had long hair and long sleeve shirts. Freddie goes in. I'm standing out at the car. And Mark's crazy. Mark's already on parole, and Mark's all like, "You ready for this, dude? Are you ready for this?" And I was like, "No." And he's like, "Well, you want to give me the gun? I'll take the gun. Let one of them dudes stud up to me. I'll whip the shit." No, you don't need the gun, bro. You don't need the gun. I got the gun. Like, okay, it's been two minutes. Let's do this. Anthony's sitting in the car, shitting his pants already. Like. So me and Mark walk in. Uh, Freddie's talking to a man, a lady, and another man. Two men and a lady. And they're looking at the wedding rings. And they look at us, me and Mark. We just stood at the door. And they said, okay, can we help you out? And we said, no, we're okay. And the lady whispered something to one of the men. And he turned around and started jogging down a hallway. And Freddie backed up, pulled the Mac 11 out of his shirt, and, and cocked it one time. And said, everybody freeze. This is a robbery. Now, 
it got this quiet in there. It got this quiet in there. Uh, I pulled out my 357 and kept it at my side. Mark ran to the back where that man was running. And I don't know what he was, where he was running to, but Mark runs back there. And you could hear him shuffling through drawers and all kinds of stuff. And Freddie starts saying, Mark, well, he says, hey, man, get over here. Hey, man, hurry up. And Mark's still back there. And then Mark, go, and then Freddie goes, Mark, hurry up. And Mark comes walking back and goes, what'd you say, Freddie? What'd you say? And I said, keep y'all out of my conversation. I don't want to be any part of this shit, right? So he comes back. We get all the jewelry. He goes, Mark, get up. Um, get, get that bag out. Ma'am, get the keys. Go open that Rolex case. She goes up, opens the Rolex case. Mark takes everything. Get up, open that Patek Philippe case. Goes over there and takes everything. Get that fucking uh, Bertolucci case. Opens that, take all of that. We take all the wedding rings. I said, well, y'all have a nice day now. We jumped in the car. Boom, we split. We switched, jumped into the stolen car. And we had to pass back by the jewelry store because we had to change the route. And when we drove back, it took us 30 seconds to get to the other car and switch. And when we were leaving and we drove back in front of that jewelry store, it was already surrounded by the police. We missed being trapped in there. And I wouldn't be talking here right now. I'd have a life sentence right now. Uh, we, they had the whole place surrounded and we drove right by them. We came back to San Antonio and we split up the jewelry. We had $268,000 on that heist. And uh, we split it up. And I was good. I stopped. Mark and Freddie kept robbing jewelry stores. And then Freddie created a trail. And one day, uh, he was on uh, Bear County's Most Wanted. And then I knew what was coming after that. Because I was at home, chilling, laying on my waterbed. It was the 90s, I had a waterbed. I'm laying on my waterbed, and I just hear this, just, Hey, Edward. And I was like, what's up? And I was like, it's Freddie. I go, yeah, I know, it's Freddie. What's up, bro? He goes, hey, well, come on out, bro. They fucking caught us. I was like, bitch, you didn't catch me. I'm watching TV. Like, I'm like, he said, no, when they caught me, they caught you, they caught Mark, they caught Anthony. We're fucked. Like, yeah, he snitched on us, and they gave me seven years for that. Yeah, they gave me seven years for that. And uh, it was worse because when he got caught, he gave us all up, and then he escaped from the county jail. Yeah, yeah. He should have escaped and not snitched at all, right? But he, he decided to snitch and then escape. And uh, so he took on <laughs> He, he took off, and he was gone for three and a half years. He was on uh, uh, America's Most Wanted and, uh, and all, all those shows. And uh, in the meantime, I got a seven-year sentence. And I went off, and I did six years in prison for that. Um, my friend Mark, he was on parole. He got 35 years for that. Uh, he did 17 and a half of that and got out of prison, was doing great, and died in a motorcycle wreck. Uh, my friend Anthony, I mean, um, Mark, I mean, uh, Freddie, who snitched on us, and escaped, he got 99 years when they caught him for the robbery, plus 10 years on top of it for escaping. So he's in there still with 109 years. And my friend uh, Anthony, the driver, got 10 years probation. And uh, we don't have any of that jewelry to this day. But that's what I did. Don't rob jewelry stores, people. Thank you. <clears throat> Our next storyteller is Kat Ramzinski. Kat is here to share her story about how sometimes the path to least resistance is simply a click away. Please welcome Kat Ramzinski. Thank you, thank you. I'm happy to be back in my hometown, San Antonio. Yes. Shout out to KTFM 102.7. Yeah. 
Shout outs, Alamo City Heat. Shout outs, Nacho McClavio. You remember him? Yeah. Remember Patsy Torres? Macrila's mom. Remember when it was good? Me neither. Okay. I'm like super stoked to be here. This is my second vacation, technically, in the lab, because we're poor. So, in the last decade, my first is the one I'm going to tell you about. This is actually my first real, real vacation. It happened when COVID was winding down. And I was at that point in COVID where, like, I was doing too much shit, okay? I was <laughs> I was buying things on Amazon like crazy. Do y'all remember that phase? Yeah. I bought an air fryer. It didn't work. The air still tastes bad. I almost got an MLM. <sighs> if you don't know what that is, it's what all your divorced friends on Facebook are doing. It stands for moms losing money. Don't do it. Um but I ended up getting a really great call as COVID was winding down and they were letting people travel. It was from my boss. Um, and he said, Hey, since you toughed it through the furlough, we want to give you a treat. We want to take you on an all expense paid trip to Hawaii for two weeks. Your boyfriend can come the last week since you guys were going to do a vacation anyway. It's going to be me, um, your ex-boyfriend who is his husband now. And, <laughs> <laughs> And then my current boyfriend and then their mother-in-law, Rhonda, who's from Kentucky, and Chain Vapes Menthol Vaporizers. Um, I love her. She is my hero. So I said, of course, of course, because, again, poor. You say yes to free things. Um, I grew up here. I know what I'm doing. So I said, yes, of course, I'm going to Hawaii. And I didn't really um, think it through that much until I got on the plane. And then I realized, where is Hawaii? Because, again, I grew up here, and uh, I didn't know it was nine hours from Japan, and I didn't know it was in the middle of the ocean. Um, that's my bad, but <laughs> while I was in the air, I started kind of freaking out because um, I realized this was a bad thing to agree to, right? Like, oh, yeah, a little about me. I hate flying more than anything. I'm super scared of it. I don't like hiking. To me, it's just difficult walking. Um, I don't... <laughs> I don't uh, tan, I sunburn, I have psoriasis, I can't be outside, I don't like animals, I don't like mother nature, I don't like beaches, I don't like the ocean, I don't want to hang out with sharks. Um, I don't like any of that stuff, and uh, I don't like spam. So, when we got there, I was like, hmm, this might not have been a good idea, you guys. Day one, immediately sunburned, uh, found out I was along the equator, didn't know that, um, slept in on all the cool stuff. And one of the reasons I even agreed to it, like the first thing that clicked in my head was, this is your chance to please your grandmother, who is unpleasable because she's from here too. She's very Catholic. So uh, I thought I'm going to get her a pearl from Hawaii because she freaking loves Pearl Harbor. Um, I don't know how else to explain that. She's just super into it. Um her dad was in it and like survived on the Arizona or something. And she's like, Pearl Harbor. And I'm like, let's get her a pearl. Like she always complains about my eyebrows. This, this will make it stop, you know? <laughs> so when I get there, it's like Pearl Hunt, Pearl Hunt. But before that, it's Hawaii. I heard they have good legal tobacco. <laughs> cough, cough. Let's find some. 
And I did, and I smoked it on the balcony, and I found out in Hawaii you can't smoke anywhere. They're not into that. And I found that out um, because my downstairs neighbors staying below us, uh, they were – let me just tell you about them. There's 15 of them. They're very Mormon, and they all had um, matching Hawaiian shirts and khakis and lays. And when I got in an elevator with all of them, children up to adults, they all put their heads down. And when I got out, they went, she's gone. And (laughs) – it was horrifying, and I didn't like them, and they narked on me, and I called them Jurassic narks because not only did they go on the tours every day, but a cop showed up to my room, and he was like, I don't know where you're from, and my dumb ass is like, Texas, and he's like, well, you can't do that here or there, I think, so don't, like, Okay. And I said, sure. And he points really far away and he goes, in Hawaii, there are smoking sections. You must respect this land. That is the smoking section, which it looks close, but that's just because there's not a thousand football fields to point over right now. Um, It was very far away. And I have a horrible smoking addiction. Don't do that, guys. It's bad. It sucks. But actually, it kind of doesn't suck because in a way it worked out for me. The smoking section at the Hilton Hawaiian Village in Oahu, Waikiki is the most lit place, (laughs) both figuratively and literally, that I have ever been to in my entire life. Let me tell you about these people. First was one of my personal favorites. I call her Pit Woman. She weighed 400 pounds. She always had her belly out and her her sawed-off blue jeans unzipped, her jean shorts. She called them sawed-off. They were just cut off, but she's from the South. So she'd say, my sawed-off shorts, I'm going to let them out. You guys got a problem? Deal with it. And she just... Out, you know, and she keep her cigarette right under her left tit, and she she talked like this, and she talked about I'm here because I threw my husband in a pit, and I was just like, oh, you murdered a man, and <laughs> I'm really into true crime, so I immediately start asking her questions. It's a long story, but insulin's expensive in America, anyway. <laughs> Also, again, MLMs are very bad for your marriage, for everything. Um, And if you are dating someone with a pit in their yard, go. Go, get away from them. Um, So anyway, she took all his life insurance and went to Hawaii. Um, My other favorite person I met, it was his name. We called him South Carolina just because he was from South Carolina. I don't know. He looked like ludicrous. He was very funny. His... (laughs) child would ask me and my boyfriend questions like why aren't y'all married and I'd be like shut the f- oh man um the other couple I really liked the Alaskans uh, they didn't talk much the only thing they said to me was Alaskan bush people is fake and I was like word because I didn't know that and that was cool um <laughs> and then there was a guy we called him life alert um Day one when we met him, first of all, he looked like Skinny Pete from Breaking Bad, okay? (laughs) He shows up. He's just got a towel on. He's holding a marijuana cigarette, and he hits it, and he announces to us, I have a legal license to smoke this. I'm from California. I've been in a coma for six weeks. I saw death, and I'm in Hawaii now, and this is my vacation, and if you don't like it, deal with it. And Pit Lady said the same thing about her belly, so I let it go, right? So I asked him the obvious question. Um, A, can I push your life alert button? He let me. It doesn't work well. Don't get one. Um, <laughs> B, what, happened when, what happens when you die? And all he said to me, you guys, I swear to God, he looks at me and my boyfriend. He goes, when you die, you get sandals. 
So there's that. Uh, I don't know what else to say about that. I just thought y'all should know. Don't worry about your feet. You get sandals. Um, the last thing that happened in Hawaii, though, was the craziest. It was the last day before we left. I was like, you know, it's been weird. It's been fun. But I'm going to make I'm going to make one with Mother Ocean. You know, I'm going to make peace with it. I kind of like it now. And I was just floating. Think about death, all kinds of stuff. And I'm just like floating in the ocean. I'm like relaxing finally. And I could feel like someone's looking at me. And I look to the left. And I see a woman who I can only describe as emaciated Susan Boyle. And she's dressed like a Branch Davidian. Like head to toe. And she's with these two guys. They're like, they've got suspenders. They're nice, like churchy Sunday cult gear. And they're walking in the ocean towards me. And I see my boss and my friends on the coast. And I'm like paddling towards them like. This, they're coming towards me, you know, like I'm scared. And then the woman reaches in her side and she's got this little like bag and she grabs something and she throws it. And then all this like dust, I felt it like hit me. I got salt bayed by human remains in Hawaii. And I panicked and I started screaming about it a lot. Like, I wanted to speak to the ocean's manager. I was very upset. <laughs> and as soon as I got to shore, I told my boss and my ex-boyfriend slash his husband and Miss Rhonda from Kentucky and my boyfriend, I said, I think I got human remains in my face. I got salt made by human remains. <laughs> and then my boss said the craziest thing he's ever said to me other than want a job. It was, um, he looked at me and he said, Kat, be cool. <laughs> be cool? Don't you think if I knew how to be cool, first of all, what an inappropriate time to make such a demand. Second of all, if I knew how, don't you think I would have, dummy? I would have been cool this whole time. But guess what? I'm not cool, okay? I'm not like that lady in, who threw her husband in the pit. I'm not cool, okay? None of this is cool. This is not okay. I never wanted to go ash to mouth <laughs> in my life. So you're asking me, Kat, what does this have to do with pearls? Well, the answer is, I I mean, I did go get the Pearl, but it wasn't actually from Pearl Harbor. Um, they don't have those. And um, I got her a weird ring, and then I found out that's just made in China. So then I went on Amazon and ordered a Pearl from Hawaii when I got back and lied to her and didn't tell her the truth. But anyway, um, yeah, I got it. And would I go back? Yeah, totally. Hawaii's great. You guys should check it out. Thank you guys so much. <laughs> Our next storyteller is Carter Anderson. Carter is here to tell his story about the importance of knowing your exit strategy no matter where you are. Please welcome Carter Anderson. Oh, it's about to get adequate up in here. So, I spent a little bit of time in Orlando, Florida. If you have never had the opportunity to go to Orlando, Florida, don't. Um, you don't need to do that. Um, like, you know, like they have Legos everywhere. Like, you know, it's, it's just no reason to go there. Um, so, I went there uh, to, I, I was working as a comedian. That's when I first started doing comedy. 
um, I decided to spend one evening at a place called Downtown Disney. Now, Downtown Disney is kind of the adult version of Disney. It's just this one large strip where there's just, instead of like a bunch of rides and stuff like that, there's a bunch of bistros and bars and like fun restaurants for adults. Like it's just, it's kind of like like going to like Vegas, except it's not the land of the heathens, you know? It's just good old adult fun. So I went there and I hung out at this one bistro and I had some drinks, I had some food. It was just me by myself. I was just having a really nice little time. I was really nice and classy the waiter came by and he gave me the check i gave him my card he left he came back a few moments later and said excuse me sir your card was declined do you have another form of payment now here's the thing i did not a quick side note, you ever notice that it's the people that are broke as hell that are the most surprised that their card did not go through? <laughs> like, it's always some dude with, like, flip-flops and, like, a Mountain Dew t-shirt that's like, why, that's impossible! <laughs> I just bought some corn nuts earlier! You run it again, you fool! So I'm panicking. I'm freaking out a little bit because, you know, I don't have any other card. I'm in downtown Disney. I'm in this place. I've gotten all these food, all these drinks. I've gotten all this stuff for myself, and I have no way to pay these people. And they need to be paid. They're going to send me to Mickey Mouse jail. <laughs> I can't go to Mickey Mouse jail. I'm 35 years old. I can't go to Mickey Mouse jail with all the kids that got left behind by their parents and Raven Simone's career. Like, I can't do that. The waiter comes back after a few moments, and he's like, sir, are you ready? And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, uh, real, real quick thing, Phil. And he's like, my name's Derek. And he's like, I'm like, so Gary, um, Here's the thing. I'm having some issues with my card. Um, I just need to get my bank on the phone so I can see what the heck is going on here. And he's like, okay, sure, no problem. Yeah, no rush. Take your time. So I get on my phone, and I talk to no one because no one can help me out with this situation. And then I just start, you know, you know when you're, you're just trying to get people to leave you alone so you just act like you're having a conversation and you're not talking to anyone that's just me okay that's fine um so i'm just having a co casual conversation with absolutely no one and then i start walking out of the bistro the waiter sees me walking out of the bistro and he says hey someone get him that's when i start running out of the bistro because that is what you do when you hear someone say, hey, someone get him. And you know that that him is you. So I start running. He starts chasing me. Then three other waiters from that very bistro start following him. So now four, count them, four waiters are chasing me out of downtown Disney. Here's the thing, folks. You shouldn't run from the police. They have guns. They will shoot you. You shouldn't do it. 
but screw these guys, right? Like, what are they going to do? They're, they're, they're just some waiters from downtown Disney. I'm not afraid of a waiter from downtown Disney. The waiters from downtown Disney do not have guns. And even if they do have guns, I'm not afraid of a gun that goes, oh, when you turn off the safety. <laughs> so I start booking it. I start running. Here's the thing about me and running. I don't. Um... I don't care for it. I'm a rather tall guy and kind of a big dude. I'm, I'm six foot five, 200 pounds in Texas. And But that day, in downtown Disney, in Orlando, Florida, I was from Wakanda. <laughs> and I got the hell out of there and then spent the rest of the day in Universal Studios. Guys, thank you so much. I've been Carter Anderson. Thank you for your time. Our last storyteller of the night is Clay Utley. Clay would like to remind us all that hell hath no fury like a theater major scorned. And I had to say that very melodramatically. Please welcome our final storyteller, Clay Utley. <laughs> So it was the fall of 1999, in October. I was a freshman theater major at a college in Abilene, Texas. Y2K and the end of the world were floating out there on the horizon, but I didn't care because I just got cast in a short film for a student project for the Halloween Film Festival. And you know, this is the days before cell phones, so the director told me, Hey, Clay, just wait in the dorm room, by the phone, late Friday night. We're going to go film in the cemetery. I'll call you. I'll tell you where to meet. I'm like, awesome. So I'm waiting by the phone. I'm waiting. I'm waiting. I get bored. So I walk down the hall to my buddy Bo's room. Bo is also a freshman theater major, and, you know, we start watching a movie, playing video games. I don't know what. And all of a sudden, Bo's phone rings, and this is the conversation that I hear. Oh, yeah. Oh, awesome. No, no, I'm, I'm not doing anything. Oh, yeah, I'll be right there. Okay, bye. Bo gets up, and he starts to leave the room, and I'm like, dude, where are you going? He's like, oh, man, that was Jonathan, the director. He said he called your room, and you weren't there. So then he called me, and he offered me the part, so I'm going to go make the movie in the cemetery. I'm like, Bo, you didn't think to tell him. Clay is sitting right here. Let me pass the phone to him. Bo's like, no, that didn't cross my mind. And so he leaves, and I'm just sitting there like, fuming, furious. It crosses my mind to destroy the guy's dorm room, but I don't. I have some self-control, and I start walking down the hall just so angry. And then a plan begins to form in my head. I decide I am going to dress up in a creepy costume, follow the film crew to the cemetery, attempt to scare them and ruin their movie. And so I think this is a perfect idea. So I go back to my dorm room, I open up my closet, and I go to the costume section, Yes, as an 18-year-old, I had a costume section in my closet. As an adult in my adult house, I also have a costume section in my closet. And I pull out this costume from Spencer's Gifts. It is a head-to-toe hooded, long, flowing black robe with a faceless black hood, a black mask. It's like ghost face from the Scream movies, but without the face. It's, it looks like a Dementor, like a Nazgul, and I think this is perfect. 
Luckily, my buddy Bo told me exactly where the film crew was going to be meeting. So I pull out my 007 skills and I tail them all the way to the cemetery without them knowing. I watch as they park along this dirt road, hop out of the car, and then they proceed to climb like this six or eight foot fence. I go to the other side of the cemetery, hop that same six or eight foot fence, and I get into position. I put my costume on, I get ready, and I scope out where they're at. And I look, and there they are right in the middle of the cemetery underneath this big tree, setting up their lights, getting the camera ready, talking about the script, and I think this is perfect. So I crawl on my hands and knees till I'm about 200 feet from them, and I just wait behind this tombstone. And after a few minutes have gone by, I think, okay, this is probably, we'll, we'll, we'll test this out. So here's what I do. I rise from behind the tombstone like I am rising up from the earth itself. I walk about 10 feet and then I collapse behind another tombstone and I wait. Nothing. And I think to myself, you know what? They probably couldn't see me. Cemeteries are not known for their excellent lighting in the middle of the night. Let's try this again. So I, I, I rise from behind the tombstone. I walk about 10 feet. I collapse behind another tombstone and then I hear this voice and it says, it's, it's, it's my buddy Bo. And Bo goes, uh, guys, I, I literally just saw like a figure over there and it disappeared. Conversation breaks out. Dude, Bo, we're filming in a cemetery in the middle of the night. We're literally surrounded by dead bodies. Like you're just, you're, you're, your mind's playing tricks on you, man. Let's focus on the task at hand. All right. This is perfect, I think. I wait about 30 more seconds and I do it again. I rise from behind the tombstone trying to make my five foot eight frame look as big as it possibly can. This time I walk towards the group and I collapse behind another tombstone. And then another voice. You guys, Bo was right. It's one of the actresses. I saw this big black figure and it, it, was, it was right there and it, it went behind the tombstone. And then the conversation escalates. Okay, what did you see? Where was it? Who was it? Where was it? Which tombstone should we go investigate? Should we run away? And while they are deci deciding, this is what I do. I jump up from behind the tombstone. I spread my arms as wide as I can and I charge them. All hell breaks loose. <laughs> One of the girls lets out this scream, like a, uh, a scream that would have made a scream queen in a horror movie jealous. Somebody knocks over the lights. They're grabbing the stuff. They don't know what to do. Somebody yells, let's get to the cars. And then they start just running towards the fence. But the thing is, they forgot that there was a six or eight foot chain link fence between them and the cars. And I don't know if you've ever seen someone scared out of their mind try to climb a chain link fence, but it's pretty comical. <laughs> their feet are slipping and sliding, their hands, they, they, can't, they can't get a hold of it. And I realize about this time, like, I'm going to catch up to them. Like I, my plan did not account for this to be like beat up on a Friday night by a bunch of theater majors. So I dive behind a tombstone. Everybody makes it over the fence, except uh, there's this one girl. She's having so much trouble getting over the fence. And here's what I do. I stand up and I just go, Rah! and I just charge her. And she just like screaming her head off. One of her friends has to help her over the fence. They start to get to the cars and I realize they're just going to leave and they're not going to know it was me. Like, I want credit for this. So I pull my mask off, and I'm like, hey, guys, it's me, Clay, your friend, the disgruntled theater major. I, uh, I, I just I came here just to scare you and kind of mess up your movie because I was frustrated. And then one by one, they start to get out of the cars, and that's kind of when reality sets in. And I, I look at my buddy Bo, and he looks like he's lost a few years off his life. Jonathan... <laughs> The director is white as a sheet. He's like on the verge of hyperventilating. And Shay, one of the actresses, 
has literally been crying. I know this because like tears have streaked the makeup down her face. And now I am totally at a loss for words. And I'm thinking to myself, like, what, what do I say? And I'm just like, hey, guys, sorry. I just was a little upset and I wanted to scare you. Hope you're okay. <laughs> and, you know, the most amazing thing was they really weren't that upset at me. Um, either they were able to find the humor and, like, the idea of being terrified by a madman while they were filming a horror movie. Or what I think is probably more likely is that they were just glad I wasn't a real serial killer. And they were feeling incredibly lucky to be alive. So here's a pearl of wisdom for you. Don't mess with the theater major. Because you never know what we have hanging in our costume closet. Thank you.